Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I will be quick up the top here. Uh, really excited about today's episode. Um, Mikey Robbins is just one of my favorite people on the planet. He, There are probably in my career very few people who have been nicer to me along the way, um, who have been uh, more generous in welcoming me into their world and being supportive of what it is that I do. Um, I am a great admirer of how brilliant his wit is um he's one of the great conversationalists if you ever have the opportunity to have a lunch with michael robbins um he enjoys a lunch and he is charming and uh, wonderful and beautiful and heartfelt and uh enthusiastic company at a lunch and also on this podcast i hope um i hope you're really going to enjoy this one um mikey changed my life in 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 various uh, ways or at least was there when my life changed in various ways at different points in my life one of them comes up again as it did in the helen razor podcast um the first time i ever listened to triple j uh, where i saw the breakfast show live at the university of canberra bar and 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 saw mikey and helen perform and you know it's funny i studied journalism at university but you know i'm not a journalist but the thing i saw in o week which was you know this amazing radio show uh, ended up being a, a show that i did myself for for five years and and it was it was mikey and helen who first invited me into triple j it was mikey and helen who used to get me on their show and allow me opportunities to do little bits with them uh that you know got me into that family and and you know created opportunities for me down the track to you know obviously host the breakfast show with adam there on uh, on triple j for five of the you know best years of my entire life you know one of the 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 great all-time jobs that job was um and the older you get the more that you look back and realize you know what a wonderful time and what a wonderful organization and place and opportunity you know that that job was and so mikey was instrumental in that but he was also very instrumental on on the show that you know kind of gave me an opportunity for my name to get out there in a television sense which was the tv show called good newsweek on the abc and when Good Newsweek started up, you know, I was a, a pretty new comedian and it was the first big TV opportunity they got. And it was a show that, in a general sense, you know, suited what it was that I was, you know, good at or, you know, was good enough at at my age uh, to get an opportunity on a show like that. But it was a show like that that gave lots of young people, you know, people who weren't necessarily ready yet, you know, including myself, uh, you know, an opportunity to get the experience to to get ready and, I love doing that show. I, I still don't know if I've ever had more fun doing television than I than being a guest on Good Newsweek and, you know, being often, you know, sitting next to, um, you know, some of your favourite comedians in the world that you had grown up, you know, idolising and then you got to, you know, go out and make up a show on the spot with them, you know, improvise and riff and go back and forward and make each other laugh. It was, ah, it was just such great times and, you know, being the guest and being the you know, the turtle, the, you know, the bottom of the, the rung, uh, guest, but also the person, you know, who's, there is least expectation on, you know, it's your job just to, you know, be funny and fun and, and, and just be part of it. You get to get a couple of good lines or jokes or whatever away and, and you've done your bit, good fun times. And so, um, you know, Mikey was always often, uh, most of the time sitting across from me, um, which was great as well because he is so quick-witted that um, it might have been a bit harder to get as many jokes away on that show if uh, I had been on the same team as Mikey. I don't think I would have ever got him uh, with my bit first because his brain works so beautifully and quickly. Anyway, so 
I love Mikey Robbins. Uh, he's one of the all-time great blokes, and um, I really enjoyed having him on the podcast. Um, we we recorded this before Christmas, and I was going to try to get it up before Christmas, but unfortunately, just life got in the way, as it sometimes does. Uh, Twenty eighteen has been uh, a lot of people. Well, anyway, I, I don't need to go into it, but it was a, a terrible, terrible year. Uh, it was just one of those years where. Yeah, plenty of great stuff happened last year. And, you know, at some stage, I'm, I'm sure that I will look back on that great stuff. And, you know, time will give me a perspective that, you know, I can look back and reflect on the, you know, the victories of 2018 and the things that, you know, were great about 2018. But unfortunately, it was one of those years where, like many people, uh, there were a series of other things that overwhelmed uh, the positivity. And it was hard to see, you know, the the light through the darkness sometimes. And, and so uh, as much as I know that, you know, dates are very, very arbitrary. In fact, you know, there's no no reason that people can't be lis- listening to this well after, you know, the point that A, the podcast was recorded and uh, B, when I recorded this introduction, you know. Anyway, you don't need me to get uh, bogged down in a, a discussion of time, but I am one of those people this year at the very least who um, I'm starting 2019 hoping that it will be a much better year than uh, 2018. And um, so I thought, you know, why not start the podcast with one of my my great friends and my great mentors and, and you know, just a guy that I like to sit down and, and chat to. So this is Mikey Robbins, buy his book, buy his book, you know, you're going to enjoy the book, but also, you know, support Mikey. Um, he's, a, he's a brilliant mind and I want him to write more books. Anyway, I think heaps of people are buying his books, but you know, you should buy his books too. All right, this is Mikey Robbins, enjoy. Oh, I'm back. I realized the whole point of that introduction was that I was meant to um, plug my shows that I have coming up. So uh, my show is called Will Informed. Uh, Hobart is on sale at the moment uh, and also Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Hobart, if you want to come and see that show, getting quick, it is selling very well. Uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival is also selling well, but there's 20 shows in a thousand seat venue so there's still plenty of tickets available but yeah come out and see the new show um not going to adelaide or brisbane for their comedy festivals this year which is i think only the second time i've missed adelaide in 20 years and it's gee it's been a long time since i haven't done the brisbane comedy festival so it's going to be a different start to next year uh this year sorry a different start to this year uh than than usual um which I'm excited about, you know. I, I, I'm sad to be missing those festivals, which I love very much, but um, I have to go overseas in January and um, uh, I've, I've got some work commitment. Anyway, you don't need to know all this stuff. Anyway, the plug, just do the plug. Hobart, Melbourne, on sale now. Other places to come, they'll be on sale then. Comedy.com.au Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I'm very excited about today's episode because uh, the person we are going to talk to is not only a great friend of mine but also uh, a man who was probably the most kind to me when I first entered the comedy industry, Aww. certainly the most supportive of me and uh, provided a great deal of opportunities for me. So it's a great pleasure to be able to sit down at a table with a guy who I consider a friend but also a mentor and a role model. And uh, anyway, uh, this is how the podcast starts. I asked the guest Mm-hmm. Uh, who they are? Who are you? Oh, hi, I'm I'm Mikey Robbins. Apparently, I'm Will's mentor. 
Well, I, I think that that is not an unfair thing to say. Do you have an awareness of that? Do you have an awareness that you were kind to me when I was starting out? Absolutely not, mate. Um, I just, uh, I, re- I remember seeing you doing, doing a gig and I remember thinking, this guy's funny and this guy is generous. And I would say that's pretty much how you've, you know, you've, you've carried yourself through your career. You know, and the, the, the funny is a lady I'm there, but you've always been a very generous performer. I, I, I think that I was, had good role models. I think I was inspired to that generosity because we all have within us a sense of meanness, you know, oh, particularly yeah. as comedians. And I, by the way, mm-hmm. don't mean to deny that I, like, I'm as happy as anybody else to sit around and wish one of my good friends misfortune like normal people do. That's just part of being a human. Every time a friend of mine succeeds, a tiny part of me dies. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's like, you know, I was looking at Twitter and I said, oh, hey, look, oh, I adore Josh Thomas. And look, oh, his show's been picked up. Oh, yeah. oh, a little part of me is just, I'm happy for him, but a little part of me's dead. Yeah, well, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with it acknowledging that like nah. uh, you know i've spoken about it on the podcast before ronnie chang who's been on this podcast who you know uh, i could not be a uh, bigger fan of and could not be happier for all the opportunities that he has gotten and could not be more excited how respectful he is of the pathways that got him there and all those sort of things yeah, like yeah. he's good people yeah but when he got the daily show and i didn't get the daily show a little bit of you still fucking dies yeah, so. yeah, 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 that's that, that's great mate you, 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 as, as a comedian you, you you spend your life as the person that didn't win the oscar it's like yay that's great for you and you know it, 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 one thing i've learned is because you know i've been doing this since god the Menzies years, I think. Well, when? When did it start? 1990. Okay. So, I was Time a- for the guru and also Mikey Robbins. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yes. They'd been the guru. I know those stickers. Shit. Yeah, 1990, I was, um, I was writing sketches at Triple J. I just, and I, I just thought I'd get a job there by, by osmosis. I thought if I just hang around long enough, they'll give me a gig. And, and then I lied. And said so I knew how to operate a radio panel, and I still hold the record for taking the station off air the most amount of times in one shift. How many times in one shift? Sixteen. Oh, that is a lot. That's a lot, man. Because <laughs> it takes a little while to take it off line, and it probably takes a little while to get it back up again. Yeah, so really, yeah, yeah sixteen times I had to go to the standby tape, and um, I got called in by <laughs> by the late Stuart Matchett. Um, on that was on I did it on the Saturday night, and I got called in to his office on the Monday. And I thought, well, that's it. They're never going to let me near a radio studio again. And he went, oh, so how did it go the other night? I went, oh, he didn't hear. So I went, fine. He went, oh, good. Can you do Thursday and Friday? And I went, yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, can you remember what the song was on the emergency tape that would come in when you went off air? EMF. Mm-hmm. EMF. Unbelievable. I think, I think it was unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> Wait, actually, no, in those days, this is how long ago it was, man. There were, turn, there were turntables in the studio and you had to line up with a quarter turn a piece of vinyl before you started because they believed that if everything fell apart, at least the vinyl wouldn't. But I'd never got around to doing that. But I'd be, I, I'm being unbelievable by EMF a lot. Or as Michael Tom once called them, EMF. EMF. Remember Tunny? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, well, so I discovered uh, Triple J and I spoke to your great colleague, uh, Helen Razor, about this when she came on this podcast. But I discovered Triple J when I went to university mm. because uh, where I was from in country Victoria, we didn't have a Triple J back then. Triple J became increasingly uh, important for country children as a way to connecting them to the rest of Australia. But that happened sort of from post when I got to university yeah. onwards. Well, actually, um, that was one of the most exciting things of being at the J's in the 90s 
when I first started, it had gone from Sydney into the capital cities, but then going regional was, was wild. And, you know, you, and you'd get, you get you know, faxes. Yes, faxes, <laughs> boys and girls, from, from kids in, you know, in, 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 in country towns who'd never heard. All, all they had was, you know, growing up was the, was the ABC and a country and western station. And I remember when Ray and I made the decision to do um, gay and lesbian only, which is what we, we called it LGBTQI at the time. Valentine's Day, you get these absolutely touching letters from kids who are like, you know, 17 years old and living, you know, a hidden gay life in some small country town. Well, Triple J in some ways was kind of like the internet before the internet. In yeah. That, in that you could be a person who in your small place felt very alone, but you suddenly realised there were a whole bunch of people like you out there in the world and you could actually sort of come together and you could kind of have some shared experience and learn from their shared experience. Yeah, and you're also talking to the guy who made one of the great bad predictions of all time. In fact, it was on a mouse pad that was a Triple J souvenir. I, I was once quoted as saying, oh, the internet, you mean the CB radio of the 90s? Yeah, it didn't quite pan out that way, did it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, people are very fond of sending me a clip from the glass house where I say, what's a podcast? Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know. I mean, you know, there's uh, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker years ago, which was uh, two dogs in a backyard, and one turned to the other and said, "I used to have a podcast, but I went back to howling at the moon." <laughs> but now everyone's got a podcast. <laughs> so um, uh, you mentioned Stuart Matchett, and I just yeah. want to briefly tell a Stuart Matchett story as well, because it's rare that you get the opportunity. Like, it's not like naturally someone like Stuart Matchett's name comes up on this no. podcast, but. Um, he was also, uh, he was a great man of radio, Stuart, oh, and just a, a very nice man and a man that we both uh, worked alongside and mm. uh, was great by the time that I got to Triple J, and I want to walk through all that, but by the time mm. I got there, he was a, um, a great uh, kind of older voice to be able to be supportive, but also guide us in better directions and those sort of things. I had a lot of time for Stuart and uh, when he passed, I was, you know, I was actually shocked by the level of you know, sadness I felt, oh, even though I hadn't really seen him much in, you know, a long time. I, I, I hadn't seen him in ages. I, I, I went to the funeral and um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was really moving. Absolute font of, of knowledge and information, Stuart. Also to, and I say this with great love and affection, the teller of the longest anecdotes of all time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember I actually walked into his office. He was staring out the window. He started telling a story. I walked across to another office, spoke to someone else, came back in, and he was still telling it. <laughs> and I, I love that about him. But, I mean, he, he's one of those guys that goes back to like you know, the old the punk era. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to tell a quick uh, story because this, yeah. this sums up Stuart Matchett. Uh, which is that, uh, so one day on the, it was in the era where television shows all had uncut versions, oh, yeah. you know, late night uncut yeah, versions. Yeah. And we were in an era of, you know, that you couldn't dump, you know, we didn't have a dump button in the studio like they have these days where you can put the show into delay if someone swears or, you know, uh, says something we'll, inappropriate. Well, I actually have to, have to let you know, you did have a dump button. Well, yes, we didn't use the dump button. Sorry, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the, we, the, the technology was installed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the same thing. We, had, yeah. we never used it. No. Well, I think often what also would happen was you'd use it, but then you can't put yourself back in again, so no. you'd go live for a while anyway. Anyway, the, anyway. one day um, uh, they, they had all these uncut shows on TV, and so I was doing a weather list, the old famous weather list, yeah. uh, in between the weather around the country. You try to come up with some concept and um, you know put a few jokes in between the weather. I, f I flogged that like a dying dog for seven years. Well, it was the first opportunity you guys gave me on uh, your show, oh, you yeah. and Helen, was to come in and do a 
little weather list. So this day I was doing a weather list of uh, other shows that should have uncut versions. All right. And uh, one of the shows, there was a popular show at the time called uh, Rex Hunt's Fishing Adventures or oh, Fishing World. Oh, well, yeah. And so I tried to say Rex Hunt uncut. That uh, is not what came out. No, I, it I, sounded a lot more like Rex Hunt's a cunt. And uh, I remember it went to air. And we didn't really get any complaints, but we were worried about what management would think. And uh, Stuart Matchett came into the studio immediately after our shift, and he came in and he said, if you guys ever say Rex Hunt on this radio station again. <laughs> and I was like, well that's, great. well, that's the sort of leadership and support that you needed. I, yeah, I, I, I got done saying fuck a couple of times. Uh, one was very hungover one morning. And Razor was laying into me, and I just looked at him and said, oh, don't fucking emasculate me, Razor. <laughs> 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 Which, uh, you know, I, I, I still stand by the statement. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it didn't deter her in any no. way. <laughs> didn't put her off, though. No, <laughs> if I, anything, she probably leaned in a little harder. Yeah. I, I, I caught up with Helen while I was in Melbourne uh, launching the book recently, and she was uh, – she hasn't changed. It was, it, was, it was great fun to see her, but she, she arrived late. And then she then she spoke for forty minutes, <laughs> but she was going. But you know, that's Helen. And then she took me. And then we went out and had a fantastic Italian meal. Uh, okay, so um, I'm going to go back to when uh, I first sort of had an awareness of uh, you guys because mm. I was at university, and um, it was my first year of university. You were at Canberra, weren't you? Canberra University, oh, University of Canberra, and uh, I was living on campus, B Block, Old Resies, and. Uh, my RA at the time, uh, who I later became, you know, very nice friends with, and we actually moved out together, lived in a share house with a bunch of other people. Uh, she loved Triple J, right. had really great taste in music, and loved Triple J. And she was like, "Hey, like on Tuesday morning or whatever, you guys were doing a breakfast OB from the Uni of Canberra the Bar, the Uni Bar, right? Oh man!" So the first time that I ever heard Triple J was when I came along to watch you guys do a live breakfast OB at the Canberra Uni bar. I think that might have been the one where I used to scull a can of beer. Correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it might seem like one of those uh, things that seems, you know, a bit juvenile when you look back on it, but I've got to say, it captured a young farm boy's imagination, Mikey. <laughs> yeah, it was... It, it, I, I, every time we did an OB at about two minutes to six, just before we went into the news, I'd walk out on stage and scull a can of beer. And then I remember my last year at Triple J, we were doing an OB from Wollongong University, and I walked on stage at 2 to 6 and sculled a can of beer, then walked off stage and threw it all up, and I went, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> it was, it was, I, 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 I always maintain this, it's time to leave, leave Triple J when you can't scull a can of beer and you've lived through your third scar revival. Yeah, I, yes, I, I certainly, I only got, I think... Um, uh, I, I, don't, I think I may have had maybe two Scar revivals. Yeah, the, the mighty, mighty boss tones were the death of me. I'm thinking, I just can't go mm. through this chunk of chunk of shit anymore. Yeah, that was the impression that I got. Yeah, yeah. But oh, I, uh, oh, oh, hey. I tell you what, <laughs> Brad's and I sitting here nursing hangovers, but the man is still quick. <laughs> Uh, so um, maybe straighten that microphone up a little bit. Yeah, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's that's not your fault. It has started to. Uh, uh, prematurely sort of uh, yeah, wobbled well, downwards. I, Look, it's not a great on, setup. Come on, you nicked these mic stands, didn't you? No, 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 these are bought. I, I, I Actually, this one's nicked. The one that I'm using is nicked. Uh, this is, well, nicked from myself, yeah. from my own tour. We left, because I take my own microphone stands on tour with me, uh, because I have a specific microphone stand that I like that venues don't normally provide. So we have one that travels with us. Um, 
Do you uh, do you have a particular mic you like? I see we've got a couple of Shure SM58s here, haven't we? Uh, yes, we do because it's the cheapest, like best option. Uh, it's it, just your classic. I, I I met a bloke once who, who was a roadie for Colt Chisel, and he said the worst job he had to do was every night he had to clean out Barnes's SM58 microphone. It was just filled with spit and phlegm. Well, uh, the other night when I was at the comedy store, I noticed that the sink uh, near the toilet backstage was filled with things that meant you couldn't wash your hands, which then made me think only of the fact that there'd been like eight people on that lineup, all of whom had probably not washed their hands after they went to the toilet, and then we all go out and speak into that grotty little... Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> it's a glamorous business that oh, we work in, isn't it? Yeah, I... There's... Nothing like getting changed in a toilet to make you realise you've made it in show business. Yeah, I have. A, like, it's funny because I have a specific stool. Like, literally, that just happens. It, it could be any stool, but I just like this stool. So we travel with a stool, the stool that I like to perform with, and we travel with my microphone stand because it has a. It's a trigger one. So I can I, see it. If I push, uh, there's a little kind of button up the top, like a little handle up the top, and if I push that in, I can I, I can move the microphone stand up and down. And venues don't provide that standard, no. so we have our own. That's my version of touring with a. It's not. I mean, it's not a lot of stuff, it's, but yeah, it is something. It's, it's, it's not like the Rolling Stones. You know, there was a period where Keith Richard, Richards wouldn't go on stage unless there was a shepherd's pie cooked for him backstage. Yeah. See, there's none of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they often get me the beer I like. Like they'll ask me what beer I like, and they'll get me the beer I like. Yeah, Van Halen. <laughs> there, there was there was there was the story that Van Halen would would insist in in, in the list they gave out to promoters that there'd be no brown M and M's in the bowl. It's a true story, and the reason they did it wasn't they didn't give a shit about brown M and M's. They had a whole bunch of health and safety regulations for their crew. So if they figured out when they got there and there were brown M and M's in the bowl, they hadn't read the health and safety regulations, and then they told the, the venue to go get fucked. I mean, that is a good way of uh, thinking about things. I like that. It's like putting something in the. It's like Apple putting something in their you know uh, iTunes terms and conditions right in the middle. Yeah. That's real. In fact, they probably do that actually. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like and, and don't forget if if you down more more than three Sinead O'Connor songs, you got to blow a donkey. What? What? Hang on. What? what, what is Hang on. <laughs> so, 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 you signed it. Yeah. You yeah, said accept. Yeah, you said like, you'd read them and like, accepted it. It's like okay, nothing compares to you. <laughs> Why is there a donkey at my... Oh, oh right. No. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, I guess I still like iTunes. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So I watch you guys do this show. Um, uh, let's take it away from me and let's take it uh, to you. So... Um, uh, the, uh, this podcast is called Philosophy, but it's only a loose conceit. But mm. I do like to ask people the question whether they have a particular philosophy towards anything. And it doesn't have to be anything in particular. It could be a major life philosophy or it could be a small philosophy. And, you know, it, it, the, you know you, when it comes to work or to love or to, you know, adventure or the way that you've lived your life, do you have any such thing? Ape shall not kill ape. Um, that's, yeah, okay, that's I, good. That. Actually, I was... I was <laughs> You're yeah. the third person I've had on. He's gone with that as if... Yeah, I, 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 I thought as much, yeah. 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 Actually, no, I was thinking... I was thinking... I, was thinking, yeah, I, th- I thought as much. You know, so, so, I was thinking about this on the way in the cab over. And when I was 14, a guy called Jacob Ranowski made a documentary series called The Ascent of Man. He was a great mathematician and a humanist. And there's a scene where he's at Auschwitz where a lot of his family had died, and he sticks his hand into the mud where the, they would wash out the ashes of the bodies. And he quotes, quotes Oliver Cromwell, who wrote a letter to the Scottish Parliament that contains the lines, I beseech you within the bowels of Christ, think it possible you may be mistaken. Now, for someone who was raised 
as a Catholic, to see that when I was 13, it still resonates with me now. The, and he goes on to say that it wasn't gas that killed these people, it was dogma. I suppose that's the philosophy I've had all my life, is I, I am terrified of people who believe in absolute truths, because people who believe in absolute truths are capable of crimes against humanity. So I prefer to live my life through a painful miasma of self-doubt, Will. Uh, yes, good. Well, that's, a, that's the correct answer. If you'd gone the other way, we would have to shut down the podcast pretty quickly. Yeah, so, yes, yes. I, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, it, that's an idea that responds to me because I often think, and I don't spend too much time worrying about what other, other people's misconceptions mm. of me are, but on, in the moments where I am or in the moments where I'm, you know, my own brain is prosecuting, you know, my own self-worth, mm. The thing that I always come back to that I think that people misunderstand about me the most is that people who don't like me think I'm very certain about my opinions. Really? Yes, as in like people who, you know, like they're like, oh, you're just this. You just, you know, uh, like, you know, believe this and you're like this. And that is a complete misunderstanding of oh, I, who I am because God. I could not be more questioning and more uncertain and more, you know, racked by the belief that... We should always be trying to make our best guess. I say it all the time when we're uh. making Gruen. I say, remember, we're all just trying to come up with our best guess. And at the end of the day, we might all still be wrong. But uh, we just try our best to, like, you know, this idea that there is some sort of certainty or some sort of answer. Or, mm. I mean, if I had certainty or an answer, I wouldn't have a podcast. I'd have a lecture series and I'd sell tapes afterwards. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'd have a book. <laughs> you've, you, you've worked with Ted Robinson. I've worked with Ted Robinson. Ted yeah. was, was, was EP on Glasshouse. He was EP on Good, Good News Week. The uh, Big Gig. The Big Gig. I remember Ted saying to me once, he said, you put just as much time and effort and, and money into a program that fails than one that succeeds, and you just never fucking know. No. And you, and you don't. It's, it's like, you know, you, you, before we start the podcast, you, you're trying out new gear at the moment, and, you, and you're doing improv. And there's that, that moment where you go, this is going to kill it, and it gets nothing. And then a sad little throwaway line that you didn't even really think about, suddenly it gets a round of applause, and you go, oh, I suppose I better keep that in. Right. I don't really... You know, so it, it is weird. You know, I, I, I always maintain that there, the only other art form like like comedy is pornography because they both require a physical reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and and just as some porn works for some people and doesn't work for others, it's always the same with comedy. You never you never know what's going to stick. Um, the difference is that it's still appropriate to gather a whole bunch of people in a darkened room to enjoy comedy together, whereas pornography, that's still... It's a, it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's a, yeah. I, I remember years ago, I don't know how we ended up with this story. Uh, my flat and I were living um, in a flat, obviously, in the industry at Newcastle, and a bunch of guys upstairs, and they used to get stoned and pissed and watch porn together. And I'm thinking... Is a prelude to what? Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, boys, if you want to, but no, no, they just, it's like, no, they just, you really should be doing that on your own. Mm. Just, I just don't really like a plot heavy story, you know? Oh, I'm man. more a visuals guy, yeah. so this is really. I mean, it used to be so hard fast forwarding. I really don't, I really don't care how this, I really don't care how the basketball team raises money. We, we didn't start, to be honest, with porn. Uh, we uh, tried to find a movie that we all had in common. Yeah. We started with The Fast and the Furious. You know, Jerry likes art house stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> suddenly, next thing you know, there's a donkey at the door. <laughs> I can have some more water? Oh, yes. And I've got some here. Thanks, mate. That's okay. No, no. This is fascinating. Thanks, mate. So, uh, 
uh, we will cut none of that out because that's the way this podcast goes, basically. Um, so uh, I want to ask you about that because... Um, now what? About, well, yes, exactly. I will get to that. So um, the idea of, you know, best guess or that you that you never have a certainty about oh, yeah. comedy and w- which bit of comedy is <clears throat> going to work. And you stumbled on something that I just, at the moment, am quite fascinated by, which is I do believe there are two very different states of comedy. And mm-hmm. the one that you see most often, like on stage, mm-hmm. is, a, is a, actually a comedy of two competing things almost because it's a comedy of uh, replication, Right. So if you are doing your material, your act, yeah. you've tried it in a whole bunch of places and you've essentially done a focus group, right? Oh, I gotcha. And your focus group, the exact... It's probably because, I, as you also know, I'm watching The West Wing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So you know how sometimes thoughts connect in your mind? Yeah. But it feels like most stand-up comedy, the set you do at a gala or whatever, has been focus grouped through all those... Other, you've tested it in front of small audiences, it's, in front of bigger audiences. You've reworded it. You've flipped that line. No, you've, it, it, it's, it, it's your tight five. Right, okay. So you've got your tight five. Yeah. Your stump speech, you know, yeah. your go-to, right? Yeah. And, but, but, but also, too, you've, you've you've got three different versions of your tight five. You've got your tight five at a comedy room. You've got your tight five for a, a, a charity gig, and you've got your tight five for a corporate room. Right, absolutely, right. Yeah. So, again, all focus tested, all, all designed fun. to be for a specific audience. But you're taking that to the audience. Now, there's this other moment, the moment of creation, right? Yeah. Where you're actually and. Yeah, so I'm doing these improvised shows, but you have made your, you know, reputation as being, you know, one of the you know, world's finest improvisers, being able to work off the top of your head. Not on stage, though. I mean, you, 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 radio and telly, I'm very comfortable. I, right. I, but on stage, I find improvising on stage really hard. Yes, but, so this is what I'm saying. I feel like they're two very different states, and I, want, I just wanted right. your comment on that, because one of them, you know, you're on Good News Week, you're right. on the radio, you're this thing. You're creating something in the moment and often like you said maybe that joke won't work because you thought it was going to work but the line afterwards works even better because you're in the moment you're creating something right there you're not replicating i know yeah you're you're creating it's it's i'll never get once on good news week i I sort of knew what the topics were going to be one night and I was, re- I, I actually, because I, I really prepped it. I, I thought of this line. I thought this is going to kill. This is going to kill. And Paul said something. And I threw my killer line out. And then Anthony Morgan just leaned over in the silence. Went, isn't it sad when sometimes a joke is just a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and you know, and it would come from one of the comedians uh. I respect most in Australia. And the worst thing was the fucker was right. <laughs> Um, so but that is you know it's funny isn't it because I think sometimes and I would say this to people a lot in those environments which is sure I mean you know if if you have an opportunity to have a couple of lines in your pocket or whatever you know have them in your pocket that's a good that's a good thing to do to prepare for a show of some kind but never then be going how can I get these lines in the show go play the show listen Make your jokes up on the spot, and if you ever get to the point where you need the jokes in your pocket, they're there. But if you walk away from the show and the jokes are still in your pocket, then it's probably been a really good show. I, I mean, I'm fabulous, but also too, I think it's, you know it's a bit like music. Before you improvise, you actually have to know the tune first, right? You, you, you know, the, you know the, the great improvisers are actually really good at the at the basics, the skills, the chops. The, you know, and it's the same with comedy. It's, it's not just a matter of. 
getting loose and, and, and rambling. You know, you've got you to know your chops. Okay, so tell me uh, how should we go through this because um, there's so much I want to talk to you about. But I, let's start with now and work backwards, I reckon, rather okay. than doing it the other way. So you, you've currently just written a book. That, yeah. yeah. So now it's called Seven Deadly Sins. And One Very Naughty Fruit. And uh, the title came before the book or does the book lead the title? I'm always interested in which way around that goes. No, the working title was Sinful Food Um, because what it is, it's it's written by an ex-fat Catholic kid. It's... um, it's, it's a look at the most bizarre parts of culinary history as seen through the prism of the seven deadly sins because, quite frankly, it's a bit like philosophy. It's a conceit. I needed to break up into chapters, but then I sort of found that that actually worked. It's been kicking around. The idea's been kicking around for a while, and then I was in the position where I could say to my agent last year, I said, unless something comes along that's ridiculous, which one or two things did, I was going to spend a year writing it, which is completely different to anything else I've done in my life. Um, even the stand-up is collaborative in terms of you're there with, the, with an audience, there with other comedians. All radio on TV I've done is collaborative. I spent a year locked alone in a room just going, fuck, I hope this is going to work. So tell me about that because I'm fascinated by that process. Like, yeah. So what did your year look like for a start? Just tell me, when did you write? Like, How did you write? Uh, like, Did you have a plan? Did you just do it when you felt like it? Like, nah, What does that look like? No, nah, um, uh, you, you, yeah, basically, you know me. Well, I, 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 I have the uh, self-discipline of a kid that's gotten into the red cordial. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to really... Yeah, seriously. Yes. I mean, Mikey, I won't lie that that wasn't part of my fascination of finding out how this book got written. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I, I, am, I, um, I, spent, I actually spent four months researching it with, with books and shit and stuff. I sat down and made a list of topics and various things. Then... Um, I worked. I, I it was actually my work day. I would, I would, even though I've got a home office, I would shower and sh- not shave. Yeah, sometimes I actually shave. I would shower and I'd change my clothes and I'd put work clothes on. And I worked till lunchtime, then I'd take a break, and then I would work till, I mean, let's face it, I work from nine till four. It's not exactly exhausting. And I would set myself a limit of, I had to achieve at least 500 words a day. The goal was 1,000, and if I had a day where I wrote over 1,500 words, I could go to the pub. Okay. And that was it. A nice little incentive scheme. Yeah, it was. It was. And, yeah, uh, and like was, one of those parents who tells their kid if they get 100 in their HSC, they'll buy them a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was like, it's like it's 1,500 words, I'm going to the pub. Um, and it was really weird. I, I, I did it five days a week. I, I sort of approached it like a job. So when I finished writing on a Friday, I would actually say, I've got the weekend off now. Or I go into a gig, do a, do, yeah. do a stamp gig. But I think that's important because I can imagine that when you have a project that is kind of your main project, like actually cutting off some, not knowing when you're not working mm. or when you know it is the weekend. Yeah, because like, you're your own boss in some ways when it comes to the hours. So the idea of having to go, no, hang on, I still should yeah. make sure I have some time and, off this. And, and particularly when you're as easily distracted as, as I am, you know. Um, I mean, I have to when I when I'm writing, it has to be complete silence. Like I can't even have the t- telly or music on in the background, um, and it's very lonely. It was weird. I I I know all the shop owners in my street by first name because I, I can see the look on their face. Oh, here comes the lonely guy. <laughs> He's just like, "Hi, James." So, um, 
What are the cherries like today? It's like, oh, just, just fuck. Don't you have... Look, my friends are working and I'm, I'm in an office on my own and I, I don't know, I, 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 I spent this morning researching about how the ancient Romans invented Gatorade, which, which they did actually. Um, please... Can I talk to another human being? Now, um, uh, is the ancient Romans inventing uh, Gatorade in the book? Yeah, it is. Okay, so uh, give me a little, because uh, I'm fascinated by, give me a little about that. Well, actually, when you talk about the process, because a lot of the stuff was researched beforehand, but of course nowadays with the net. Yeah. And that was an example of starting off in one place and ending up somewhere completely different. I was actually doing, a, I was researching a bit about how modern molecular chefs are using ash to give uh, an extra carbonized flavor to the dishes. Yep. Then, after a couple of hours of disappearing down the wormhole of the internet, I actually found out that in 1933, they found a bunch of um, gladiator skeletons, and they knew they were gladiators because of the wounds. In 2012, they did some testing on these skeletons and found they had a really high level of electrolytes. So, they then went back to a, 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 the writings of Plato, and they found out that Plato had mentioned a drink that the, gator, the, the, the gladiators drank, which was a mixture of vinegar, wine, ash, and various herbs that was high in electrolytes. So it's actually is true. Two and a half thousand years ago, gladiators invented the world's first sports drink. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. That sounds much more delicious than modern day sports drinks. Oh man! Like if I was a bar <laughs> and somebody like offered me some sort of like wine, apple cider vinegar, ash cocktail. Man, uh, maybe yeah. some organic vodka or something in that, you know, I, some I, ice in that glass. I'd, I'd be bang, <laughs> I'd, I'd be bang up for it. I mean, like, uh, what's not quite as nice? Because I, I, I know you, I know you like a beer. The ancient Sumerians, the first beer they made was more like a porridge. So they actually they invented the straw because it had a filter at the bottom. So <laughs> imagine sucking in a beery McDonald's thick. Sh- Oh, hang on, that's a great idea. Well, that's not a bad idea. That's yeah, not a bad sure. idea at all. Well, actually, when we were at uh, high school, probably shouldn't say this, I'm sure no. the statute of limitation of teen drinking and sale is probably gone by now, but we used to be very big on, we'd get a little, uh, those sort of, um, you know, mini bar bottles of like Kahlua, yeah. and we would put them in uh, McDonald's six shakes. Delicious. I was... <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, actually, I, 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 I'm going to top that. Um, this is disgusting. I was on the school debating team, and the school debating team used to used to we used to make our own Baileys. Uh, <laughs> so bootleg Baileys. Bootleg Baileys. For that, you get a. Uh, it's disgusting. You get a. Fla- okay. You get a flagon bottle. Yeah. The cheapest bottle of scotch. The bottle of scotch you got to afford. Yeah. So you'd, you'd pour that in, then you'd pour in a couple of tablespoons of quick. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the key ingredients of Bailey's. It gets worse. It gets worse. Will <laughs> two tins of condensed milk, a bit of uh, van- vanilla essence, and you top it up with milk and you shake it. And and um, yeah, that was um, that's quite reprehensible. Looking that's back. pretty hilarious. The that's things that you cook, like uh, I remember at uni. Yeah. Like, because um, we were all just like, you know, you know, proper uni students, bad diets. And well, my diet hasn't improved much, but, um, you know, just like living that sort of like unhealthy, finally out of home, you can eat what you want to eat, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, sort of thing. And I remember one day, and it was like such a production, but it was worth it, every bit of it. We hollowed out a loaf of bread. Yeah. And then we filled the loaf of bread with like pizza ingredients, so like cheese and all the things you'd put in like, you know, a, a pizza. And then... We put it like all back together and then we put batter around the outside of the bread and then we deep fried the whole thing and cut it into slices. So it was like a deep fried pizza sandwich. Yeah. It was delicious. Stoned? 
I mean, possibly. Yeah, um, you mean now? <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, I, I, I wrote, uh, Elvis is, uh, I, I didn't realise this. Elvis was actually at a, a class of 160 kilos when he died. But one of his favourite snacks was uh, was the, the sandwich made in um, Tupelo. No, no, so not, not Tupelo, but somewhere around there. Okay. And you take a loaf of white bread, you hollow it out... Mm. You then smother it in, ma- in margarine, not butter margarine. You stick oh. you stick you stick that in an oven until it's crispy. Uh. You fill one of the one of the half hollowed out bits with peanut butter. You fill the, the other hollowed out bit with je- with, with like a plum jelly or uh. jelly as they call it. And then in between, before you reassembled it, you'd put a pound of crispy bacon. And Elvis was once known to eat four of them in one sitting. Uh, it's a pomper pomper no more. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Like because you. Are a man who like has loved you know to have a great meal. Oh, do you know what shit, I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. do you remember your favourite meal you've ever had? Do you have like one that would come to mind if you were like, yep. if I, if I get to recreate one meal again, what yep. would it be? Yep, yep, yep. And that's, that's easy. It was my honeymoon, and uh, Laura and I were in Kyoto, and we were having a huge fight. She wanted to find this yakitori thing in the guidebook, and I couldn't find it. And reached that point where it was like, oh, I'll see you back at the hotel. And then there was like a little tiny restaurant, barely a restaurant. It had like six stools just near the river, just near one of the bridges that go across the Kyoto River. And we went down there and they served one dish, which was a river fish that had been caught, uh, dried, then rehydrated, and then quickly fried in a light tempura batter. And Laura looked at it, and like it was teeth, heads, and all. Laura's not big on that. It was, I can still taste it to this day. It was absolutely beautiful. And there was a middle aged Japanese woman sitting a few doors down from us, and the guy behind the counter and his wife, she was doing the cooking. He was, and he turned to us, he said, English. I said, Australian. He said, Australian. He said, Our business. And I pointed to my wedding ring, and I said, No, honeymoon. He, went, oh, honeymoon. he then took away our beers. And brought up a bottle of um, Shivas Regal in the ceramic bottle. And within about 10 minutes, the fish was great. Within about 10 minutes, he and I were doing an Elvis medley on the karaoke machine. <laughs> and then the woman who had been sitting quietly came over and, and said in broken English that uh, to celebrate our wedding, she wanted to sing a Japanese wedding song to us, which she found on the karaoke machine. And in the middle of this tiny bar, my wife and I closed dance while she, while she sang. So that's, it's not just the food, but that to me, if anyone asks what's the best meal of my life, it was that night. And it was um, 19 years ago. We're married, married 20 years next year. And we're going to go what, back to Japan. Uh, what is that like, being married for 20 years? Um, you know, were you a person that you always imagined that you would, like, did you grow up thinking I'll get married at some stage? That'll be something that I do in my life. Like, well, what was your attitude to that? Stuff? Well, I, I remember when I was a teenager thinking, you know, um, one day I'll have a wife and I'll, I'll, I'll never have to masturbate again. <laughs> and, and, and now <laughs> that work out. And, and now after 20 years of marriage, I go, is this woman ever going to leave the fucking house? <laughs> I've got to do some research yeah, honey, on honey, some ancient foods. Yeah, that thing, uh, you go to the shops, how long are you going to be? Yeah. <laughs> what, what time are you coming home? Yeah. Oh, okay, right. What possible reason <laughs> would you need to know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like, oh, well, I just want to know if I can get comfy in front of the computer or spank one out on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the idea of, I guess it goes to that idea of, you know, certainty yeah. versus the idea of uh, that no one really knows, you know. So if you are a person who, you know, you said that, you know, raised Catholic, you yeah. know, the book's called The Seven Dead- Deadly Sins. Like, I mean, it's a themed around The Seven Deadly Sins. So clearly religion still oh. has some sort of, oh, yeah. you know, even... There is a part of it that clearly resonates with the way that you are looking at the world. So talk to me about that. Um, I suppose the structure of it, um, which is something I both reject and miss. I would say I miss that. Okay, that's an interesting thing to say. I'm just saying to um, them, I have friends who are devout Catholics, and I say, look, there's a part of me that envies your faith. Right. But I don't want it. But there's a part of me that still envies your faith. Um. Yeah, it's. I suppose there's that thing. It, were you raised religious? Uh you know what? Semi-religious. I, so dad, dad's not religious. Mum's mm. mum is religious, and so mum took us to church and stuff, and you know whatever for nan. You know when we were young, but and there was a time I've spoken about this on stage before, but there was a time when I was young where I wanted to be a priest, and you know mostly in reflection, it was the you know public speaking, the oh, attentive yeah. audience, and uh, the fact that they wear black, which is always good to oh, wear on stage. Yeah, you, yeah I know, because it doesn't show the sweat. I always wear black on stage. Um, as, and you're right, that, that sense of theatre. Yeah. Um, the sense of theatre from the mass, you, you know, I used to find it interesting. Um, uh, I used to hate getting the communion wafer stuck to the roof of my mouth because we were told you couldn't use your finger to get it down. You had to use your tongue. I don't know why. Uh, let's just not go into the, any of the jokes. That, I, I, I'm, I can see the look on your face, Will. Uh, it, look, it's a, it's a difficult topic at the moment, Mikey. <laughs> yes, indeed. I don't want to have to redact no. the next 40 minutes of this podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is the, the, the news story no one can actually talk about. Yeah, but everybody seems to know about because uh, I guess the legal system hasn't adapted to modern oh. day communication. Um, let's have a little pause uh, uh, just so that I can get you a fresh drink and um, uh, I'll stretch my legs just for a yeah, second and we'll get back. I could see one day and then I was like I can't really see well I got to the point where as they say I ran out of arm yeah uh, so I, I was putting things further and further away to be able to see them and then I've got specs and someone said to me by the way the one thing that you need to know when you've got reading glasses is um, you, you, you're other, you're immediately need them like once you start using them yeah. you kind of will need them all the time and I've been amazed by that I am blind now if I don't have my glasses on to read things no I'm, I'm I, I, I've, I've I've got a pair of reading glasses. Um, I, I use them if I'm when I'm writing. I, I, I use them a bit because I do a lot of research on my phone. Yeah, I've been. I'm a. I've become a glasses because uh, uh, we have cameras in the radio studio. And um, what I've realised is when I see little clips they play back, is I gesticulate with my glasses a lot. <laughs> I'm one of those. Oh, like, 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 like Turner. <laughs> <I'm> very. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 was, I, was in your stu- I was in your studios a few weeks ago. I, went, I did a spot with Mick and Jane. They sound good. They sound really good. Good radio pros, aren't they? So yeah. who did you... Did you have radio role models before you sort of, like, you know, were started doing radio your, yourself? Because, I mean, I grew up listening to you and Helen, but I listened to Martin Malloy and, you know, you hear Andrew talk about listening and working for Doug Mulray and Mulray. those sort of things. So who was it for you? Mulray. Um, mind you, I only ever heard Mulray if I was in Sydney. Uh, yeah. In Newcastle, we had a whole bunch of jocks. 
um, who did... Which was the name of the breakfast show. A whole bunch of jokes. A whole bunch of... Oh, yeah, wing a dinger in the magpie. Yeah. <laughs> a dinger was good, though. Yeah. Oh, don't go there, magpie. Too late, he already has. <laughs> oh, dinger. Yeah, dinger, mate. Oh. Um, yeah. But, but By the way, there is an element of that style of radio, you know, the old cliche style of radio of, oh, dinger. Oh, my. Like, to me, that I find very, very listenable. I was, like, in an Uber last night, and it was some sort of like nighttime show where the jock was just way too jockey yeah. and I was loving it. It sounded like a Tony Martin podcast. I was I, loving I, it. I, I, <laughs> mate, 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 mate. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, was, I, was, I was telling you before we started, I'm, I'm, I'm off to a radio friend of ours um, birthday party tonight which will be full of mate, mate, mate. Everyone, everyone, uh, everyone want to announce the school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there'll be a lot of... Uh, that's what, well, so that's okay. So that's something that I would like to talk to you about because I think that I saw you as a, a great role model because both of us don't have what that, you would call traditional radio voices, and nah. we certainly don't have, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, uh, we both often our thoughts are working almost quicker than our mouths can work and things come out in fits and starts and half sentences, very and much so, yeah, explosions yeah. and these sort of things, yeah. And, and I, you know, before that, it was very jockey. So, was there any pushback against like your style of broadcasting? Very much so. Uh, particularly when I started working at commercial, they went, "Mate, slow down." And I was like, "Yeah." <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I, I keep saying, "Do you hide me?" Yeah, you know, you've, you've been listening to me on the ABC for three years now. And you know what I'm like. Um, my voice has gotten deeper as I've gotten older. Um, it's probably just because of smoking. But I mean that's I mean, that, that's what I, I I still to this day am, am very proud of with, with Hel, Helen and I. We didn't have radio voices, um, and also to you know when we talk about you know don't go there. It was often Helen was the one who would go where it was old race. Don't go there. You know it, it, there was there was a thing in radio at the time where if the, if a woman was on, it was her role to either giggle or be shocked. Right, and Helen was definitely not that. Well, see, sometimes, you know, you look at change as being gradual change, mm. you know, as in like you eventually move the giggler into a more substantial role and then it eventually becomes some sort of equal partnership. But that wasn't Helen Razor's style. No. <laughs> Helen Razor's style was like, this has all been bullshit so far and I am going the complete opposite direction to that. Mind you, having said that, Wendy Harmer was, was a selfish at the time too and, and Wendy's, you know, was, was, was you know, an unbelievably successful career. Well, yeah, and you know what? Like, I mean, I, and I've spoken many, many times on this podcast, and Wendy and I have actually uh, spoken many times about the fact that we would get together and do one of these at some stage. But, um, yeah, Wendy was a great role model to me because the big gig was a really instrumental oh, yeah. sort of show in my household when I was, like, you know, 14, 15. And um, to see Wendy, who was the ringmaster of this thing, host this show, I've spoken many times on this podcast before about the fact that I still don't quite understand... And I think it's why Australia was a li little late to the table in acknowledging, um, you know, the the lack of sort of equality stage time, and still are in the stand up scene and stuff. You'd know this from doing gigs. It's it, still it's better than it was. It's, it's better be than it was, was but, but it's still, still not fifty fifty. No. But I remember. See, I never just imagined that. Like I overlooked some of the things that should have been obvious in front of me because so many of my role models in comedy were strong women, you yeah. know, whether it be Wendy Harmer or whether it be Judith G Lucy Jean or Kitson. Gene Kitson or Linda Gibson or Sue Ann Post or, you know, the, the Melbourne scene in particular when I was coming up through there was yeah. dominated by like, you know, impressive, 
you know, women who Strong. were equally regarded as as the men in the scene. So I think for a while, you know, I was distracted by the fact that at that top end of it, it felt... But then you look at what Wendy did with the big gig and then you look at where, what did that go to? Like, it didn't create... You know, 30 yeah. years of, like, strong women like Wendy getting to host TV shows. No, it's it, 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 it ridiculous, yeah. Uh, Mind you, mentioned Big Gig. My first, my first ever money I made for selling, for selling a joke was the Big Gig. Can you remember the joke? Yeah, I can. Angela Moore had a suburban housewife character called Shirley Purvis, and she gave me 100 bucks to, um, to uh, gag doctor um, her, one of her scripts. Yeah. And there's a couple. There was one about um, a fat guy wearing um, shorts. His bum looked like two inner tubes having an argument. That was it. <laughs> but <laughs> that's still a lovely line. Yeah, I still use that one. I still use that one, mate. It's why I don't wear lycra. Um, and the the other one too was she she was she had a, she had a bit about. Uh, I mean, inner tubes are inherently amusing. Well, I know it's such a good choice of like thing to make because you can make that joke. Like the beauty of that joke is not the joke that you're making; it's the language with which and the image that you've evoked of that thing that you could have gone with a bag of potatoes yeah, or but- something. Nowhere near as inspired or as interesting as that. That's a great use of language. And, and and the other one too was she and her husband Barry were having a fight over a game of Scrabble, and she needed a, a joke to go in there. And I still stand by this one. <laughs> I had to convince Barry that Cracker Fat is not a town in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> See. Yes. I mean, look. Cracker you know, fat, come on. It's got a bit of international politics, but also it's got a cracker fat jacket. It's got, it's got a cracker fat jacket. Getting back to inner tubes, I, I, one, one, thing, one thing inner tubes told you when, when you were a kid was you couldn't afford as good border toys as the other families. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, they've got surfboards and surfboards. We've got an inner tube. Are we poor, Dad? Uh, did you grow up? Uh, what, what would you consider the manner in which you grew up? Oh... Uh, um, uh, like you know, from a financial like, oh, no, no, were no. you working class people? Were you middle yeah. class people? Were, yeah, like- uh, dad was a tra- dad, dad was a travelling salesman. Uh-huh. Seriously, he was. But he died when I was ten, so I was raised by mum, uh, my sister and I, and she worked at Kmart. So that was you know that's pretty you know. We did not have a lot of money. Not, I mean, I, and the suburb, the school I went to, was a combination of poorer suburbs and richer suburbs, and I was very aware of the fact that my friends had more money than we did. I'll never forget, I, was, I think I was 12 before I saw my first avocado. I went to a friend's place for dinner and they had an avocado and I didn't know how to eat it. And um, about the same age before I realised that ham didn't come out of a tin with a key, <laughs> which, is, which, which is what ham was. But then, you know, but then give mum a juice, she, 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 um, she left the job at Kmart and she went back to uni and she became a teacher. But by that stage I was out of the house. So uh, tell me what your relationship with uh, money has been like because I'm always interested in people who come from like because you got to a point where you know certainly for a you know, a considerable period of time you had a, a very good run where you had a whole bunch of jobs that you know without needing to go into any of the details people can just go if you've got a hit TV show and you've got a hit radio show yeah, yeah. you know you've got some money coming through yeah. certainly much yeah. more money than yeah. a family raised you know on a teachers or came up wage you know is oh, ever yeah. going to see so. How did, what, you know, what was your, like, how, I, I don't even really, I want to know what your relationship to money is like. Um, I'm useless. Yeah. I, I gotta be honest, Will, I'm useless. Um, thank Christ for Laura. Um, 
I'll wake up on a Monday, I open my wallet and I go, oh, look, the Amex is back. I've been a good boy. <laughs> it's, I mean, uh, heaven forbid I should say this, if something was to happen to my wife tomorrow, i got no idea where the money is. Yeah, right. I just, every now and then... It's a good incentive to keep being nice to her, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every now and then some papers, <laughs> some, some papers appear in front of me with sign here stickers and I go, okay, that sounds good, that's yeah. good. Um... And having said that, you know, we, we will sit down from time to time and have long-term objective, yeah. objectives discussions. But now I'm, you know, if it, oh, I've said it before, if it wasn't for Laura, I'd be living in a dumpster. Well, not a dumpster. Well, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be living in a dumpster. You'd be living in a series of like, because you, like, I, a person like you, I always, this is, I mean, again, sometimes this podcast is, you know, it's called philosophy and I talk about me as much as I talk about anybody, anything else. But, and I know some people don't like that, but you know, whatever. There's I don't heaps, care. There's heaps of podcasts out there. So no, no, <laughs> find no, your no. own choices. No, yeah, fuck it. No. no, but I always think that comedians, particularly the style of comedians we are, um, you know, where you can do panel or you can be a radio host or you can mm. kind of apply your comedic skills to a bunch of things. We're kind of like card players going town to town where that like you're, you'd find a game, yeah, right? You wouldn't be living in a dumpster because no. what you'd be doing is you'd be a travelling salesman find, going town to town I, yeah, looking I, for a game that you could get involved in and you'd make your way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, you, you, you can't just do one thing um, and... Uh, I mean, I used to maintain we live like pirates right. a little bit too. Um, <laughs> and the good thing is Laura knows where the treasure's buried and I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have a backup plan. Yeah, if you're kidnapped, you can't leave yeah, them to the it's, treasure. No, it's, it's like, you know, honey, where are those Spanish doubloons? I'm not telling you. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's all good. That's all good. Um, uh, what... Uh, makes you passionate about your work like what is it that when you're like really enjoying it you know when you're not yeah. you know i mean because we do this as our way we make our living which means that not, not every bit of it is you know as enjoyable as other bits right some of it's just hard work or boring or you know monotonous it's or not really mate. meetings or no but i mean oh, that bit yeah yeah I, I, God, I loathe meetings i loathe meetings there are some elements of it that i mean not by the standards of having a real job no, I but, understand no, no, that, but you, I, have I, you, you've had a real job yeah i've had a real I've job had a real job yeah i've had several real jobs and well, I, I do not recommend them <laughs> I, I was a dishwasher <laughs> man that is hard work yeah that was, that was hard work no no i've often said that my worst day doing this is still better than my best Day doing anything else? Yeah, I mean, I well, I've now reached an age where I actually can't do anything else. I, well, me neither. I, I've been like, doing it so long. I mean, I mean, I'm I, still qualified to go back to journalism, but journalism went away while I was doing this. Yeah, um, I mean, I found myself in the position of you know, I've, I've written a book, which is it's it's the same job, except it's it's done on your own. Um, but it's um, why do why do it? I I just like I like making people happy. And maybe that fills a hole in me. It fills a hole in you. I don't know. But there is. I mean, I, I think Steve Abbott once said that um, that laughter is the hug that only strangers can give. And there right. is something nice about you know being writing something or performing something and someone you have never met. You connect with them and they find that entertaining, and that, that fills a, a void. Uh, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a different spin on that from uh. my perspective, which I think absolutely I understand that 100%. I, you talk about that hole that it feels in me, and there's probably one that I uh, don't uh, recognise or know, right? You know, yeah. There's probably one that, like, you know, 
but like I've been going to a lot of therapy and stuff and trying to actually examine what it is that I get out of that and what the connection is because what I have felt like was when I first started I really did feel like what I was getting out of it was that in that moment I was having a connection with the audience right I was saying something and they were connecting to my idea through laughter and that was about us and I was saying to my therapist I was saying I, I, I think that I don't feel that the same way anymore but I said is this a weird thing to feel I think that the joy that I get isn't out of me connecting with other people because I don't feel like that's something that I need in my life anymore for my ideas to be validated. Go into your theory that I've kind of submitted myself to the idea that I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. So having my ideas validated in that way, aren't it isn't quite as important to me. Oh, yeah. But Or maybe it's just because I have a whole bunch of opportunities for my ideas to be in that and I'm just like, you know, I'm a man who like eats eight meals a day and goes i'm never hungry i don't know what you're talking about you know what i mean like maybe that's the case i don't know but what i actually enjoy more is there are rare things these days where a group of because people don't even go to the movies that much no, anymore, no, really. right where a group of strangers will come together and they can be completely different in my front row the other night there was a 13 year old kid and a 93 year old woman in the front row separated by one person right so, you know that's what's wrong with tinder <laughs> So, um, <laughs> wish I thought of that joke at the time. But I, um, uh, the point being that you're making a connection between some people yeah. who wouldn't ordinarily necessarily connect, and I get joy out of their connection with each other almost more than I get out of joy out of with my connection with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It doesn't sound quite as needy as as, as my theory, but um, <laughs> no, I. Yeah, I, <laughs> I may be oversimplifying, but I feel no, like no, 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 no. I, I, I can see what you're talking about. That, that idea of of, of um, why are these people in this room? Why and and what what is it? What because you know the, the you know the comic device of the callback. Right. And what the callback does. Oh, Mikey, I've relied on it heavily throughout my career. What are you talking about? It's when you set something up and then you repeat it. What you're actually doing is creating a sense of community within the room. It's like, oh, I know what he's talking about. We took, we heard that earlier. And so, so that, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, you, you do when you, when you, whether you're writing, whether you're on, or, or on telly or on radio, is you try and establish a sense of community b- between your listeners or, or viewers or readers. Um, tell me, uh, if you had to look back and say, right. I reckon this was when I was having the most fun. This was like, because it's uh, sometimes at the time you don't realize it. Yeah. Right? It's only when you reflect back yeah. and you go, "I reckon that was it for me." That was the time where I was. Doesn't mean it was the most successful point of your life. For me, I would I, I can easily identify it. The most fun I ever had was um, the couple of years just before my career properly broke. Like bef- I was in Melbourne. I was yeah. living in North Carlton. All, me and all my friends, there was a whole bunch of us, like Husey and Rove and Hallier and uh, Corinne and, you know, uh, Michelle Laurie and Tripod and all these guys who were all about the same age. Yeah. We would do shows together, you know, we'd do uh, Jedwood's Elbow Grease and we'd all come with new material and we were all on the way. It felt like things were kind of, but we weren't quite there yet. And it was still to this day the happiest time of my life. Like, I loved it. Like, even though we all were so ambitious to stop living that life and live the life that we all now lead. Uh, it was such a wonderful time. Uh, do you have a time that you remember as being yeah, like, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah, I've been incredibly lucky my whole life. But I, I think one of the times I was really, really happy was when Good News Week came back. I mean, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm still very proud of, of, of the first shows. But when we came back, um, I said, I, you, you, you have those moments when you know you're, 
you're peaking. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, because I was the healthiest I've ever been in my life. And I was, I was really, I was really, really enjoying doing the show. Really enjoying doing the show. And because um, and the thing was, when it came back, it was only supposed to come back as eight specials because there was a hole in Channel 10's programming because of the writer's strike in America. And it ended up running for three and a, three and a bit years when it came back, uh, which I, I wasn't expecting. I was doing radio at the time. I was doing um, Brecky on, on um, Vega, which is now smooth. Uh, this week, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot. And the funniest thing too was, because I was down to 95 kilos, Paul couldn't make fat jokes, but I could still make short jokes. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is weird, because it's a weird thing about McDermott. He's actually, we're about the same height. <laughs> But he just looks little. He just looks like... He, it's like John Howard. John Howard, the former John, Prime Minister of Australia. John Howard, John Howard and Keating were the same height. Yeah, yeah. He, he, no one ever... Everyone thinks of John Howard as being little Johnny, but he wasn't actually that no, little. No, no, no. Paul's, Paul's one of those guys, you know, the, 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 every time you look, you look at him, you think, there's a ceramic mushroom not being sat on. <laughs> <laughs> um... Maintaining long-term friendships that are also long-term creative relationships. That's Tell a, me about that. That's a that's a really interesting one. And there was one moment. Um, you, know, you mentioned Paul. I saw Paul the other night, and I don't see enough of Paul. I really don't. I, I, I miss him. No, I got to see him recently at a uh, birthday party, and uh, we spent a considerable amount of the night riffing on the fact that. Um, he, he did not find me conventionally handsome and that I'd never been conventionally handsome and that it, through any prism throughout history in which people had measured uh, aesthetic worth, I would never be incre- never, never be handsome. See, I've always thought he was gorgeous. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've always liked you slightly more. Yeah, yeah I know. But, but <laughs> everyone does. Everyone does. It was funny. I, I, I mentioned doing Vegas during the breakfast show. Tony Squires has probably been my longest friend. Long, we've known each other since university. And we've been on each other. You know, he, he had the fat. I, I would appear on that. We need good news. Good news. So we'd been on each other's shows. And long story short, I came in to. I, God, I hate saying that. I um, I came in to fill in one morning when he was doing breakfast on Vega, and after and that went well. And they offered me the job. And Tony and I went out and had a drink. And I said, I said, look, um, we've never worked together before. And he went, yeah. I said, how, I said, how do you feel about it? He said, he said, I'm not quite sure. I said, neither am I. I said, because, and you know this, no matter how much you personally love the people you work with, you're going to argue over something at some stage. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or if you don't. There's something wrong. And I've spoken there about this before because I think that I, like, traditionally prefer to work with people that I'm not, fr- uh, like, real-life friends with. Or, you know, like, yeah. not, it doesn't mean not friendly with. I don't want to, like, but... I actually have found that when I do work with people, when Limo and I did the radio together, I actually found it really hard to have those arguments that you should be having to, yeah. to make the show better because he's my mate and I, I don't want to have an argument with my mate. Whereas sometimes if that other person is just someone you work with, mm. you can have the argument that needs to be had. I, I did a radio show on, on a digital channel for a couple of years, about two years almost, with Ian Rogerson, who's one of my best mates as well. But that was fine because... Ian's the sanest person in show business. Ian is just the most normal, rational human being. And so, uh, which is sort of, I, I don't think I've ever seen Ian lose his temper. 
I think when you spend a lot of a lot of years working with Jono, you build up some resilience. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, how much of you know who you are do you think is shaped by the people around you versus you know yourself? So I've often found the way that I like you know the way that I have become as a performer. You know, say in a radio studio, part of how I became was a reaction to the. Uh, splitting of roles and the splitting I, of attitudes that Adam and I had. So I wasn't fully formed in that role because Adam had the sort of intellectual, sort of, you know, well-spoken mathematics, oh, that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, end. Numbers. So yeah. what the show needed was a little bit more sort of... Humanity? Yeah, well, just playing down of it, just being a bit more accessible to the audience stuff. So in a balance like that, you lean into it a bit. Like, if I, want, I often wonder if I'd landed the other way around, where I had been the person who was feeling the more Actually, intellectual role, how that would have shaped me perhaps in a different way. Actually, it, it, it's funny, because this has been going through my mind uh, recently because I've been out promoting the book, which means I could start the morning on the Triple M Breakfast Show and then I would go and do uh, work with Richard Feidler. Yep. And then, uh, so, you know... And I knew I knew completely that if I was in with um, the guys from the Triple M Breakfast team, I was wikey. And then when, when I was with Richard, I was very much more. You know, I was like, see, you know what's required of you in in, in in different environments. So you know, I sort of know that if if if, if I'm going to talk to the guys on Triple M, we're going to crack a few uh, fart jokes, a few poo, you know, and and there are plenty of fart jokes in the book. But uh, but then, you know, so. You when you go to talk to Richard Feidler, you realise that he's going to know more about your life than you actually yeah. do yourself. Oh. <laughs> actually, Richard, Richard was a that was that was a weird one too because Richard's someone who I would describe as um, a close acquaintance. I mean, I would probably see Richard once or twice a year. Yeah, same. Yeah, um, but so I know him well enough that I know him, and then of course he and I have the connection of both having spent. You know, a fair amount of our lives gaff taped to Paul McDermott. Yep. And um, so being in a bit, bit, like, it's funny, you and I don't see each other that much, but I feel because of our shared history that I, 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 I know you more than I know Richard. Uh-huh, yeah. And, um, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was a really interesting conversation. He, um, He's a very good interviewer. He's fantastic, actually. In that, it's, you, o- you, it's often what I like to say to people who complain about this podcast is, there's already a good podcast where people interview people. It's called Conversations with Richard Feidler. Yeah, you should listen to it. <laughs> nah, nah. I like to have a completely different approach. He has, like, that's the one where you get all the information about the person. This is the one where I ignore that stuff and talk about what the best meal you ever had was. <laughs> I think that is much more interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Feidler yeah. probably didn't ask you about the best meal of your life, did he? Uh, no. Okay, I want to ask you, what was the first album you ever bought? Yeah. Oh, did he ask you that? No, no, I'm asking you. Oh, okay. I know exactly the first albums I bought. Yeah. Um, I know the first album that I obsessively, like, uh, obs- well, the fir- okay, I'll give you this in two steps. Yeah. Uh, uh, Andy Buck's sister, Helen. Uh, Andy Buck was a friend of mine. Uh, yeah. They were an American family um, who'd come out to Australia and they were the coolest because, yeah. you know, they always had, like, American products in their fridge and oh, stuff, yeah, like yeah. French's, like, mustard and shit yeah. like that that you thought was cool when you were a kid. And uh, she gave me a cassette tape. Well, Andy gave me the cassette tape, Beastie Boys on one side and Run DMC on the other side, and I would have, like, played that until it sounded like Peter Harvey Canberra rapping, you know, wow. uh, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. That's so much cooler than mine. Uh, but, no, the, the first ones I bought, yeah. I got uh, – it was Christmas vouchers yeah. um, and um, I had enough for three cassettes and I bought three cassettes at the same time. So I don't know which counts as a, but it's a real journey and that's what I'm going to take you on now. Okay, what do you got? Uh, okay, I'll start with the coolest. 
Yeah. Uh, the Cure, Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, brilliant. Right. Okay. If I stop there, that'd be a really cool but place But you're not going to gonna stop there, are you? I am not. Now, no. this next one, I, I, I would still argue very heavily that you this can, is still a great album. You can justify this one, can you? Yeah. Uh, Paul Simon's Graceland. Yep. Good album still, 100%, 100%. right? 100%. I mean, I, admittedly, I probably bought it just on the back of You Can Call Me Al, but I grew to love it as an Funny album. Funny film clip with Chevy Chase. Exactly. And... Uh, uh, last but not least, yeah. uh, John Farnham's uh, Whispering Jack. <laughs> so that that was my three. Okay, it's a real journey. It's a, it's 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 like whenever you see it's like whenever you see people in a spa bath, one of them doesn't belong. It's like, hang on, who brought this guy? <laughs> Who's Whispering Jack over here? Uh, yeah, but, Try and understand it. Um, (laughs) What was yours? uh, The world of of Cat Stevens. Um, Show my age here. I really liked, uh, you know, the the T for the Tillerman and those sort of folksy hits that he had when I was was about eight or nine. And um, so I went to the local Coles and there was a Cat Stevens album and I had enough money to buy it. Unfortunately... Before he became the sensitive singer-songwriter, Cat Stevens was a pretty ordinary R&B singer. And what I had bought was a compilation of his failed hits before he became... So I got it home, and the only song that people might remember is Matthew and Son. The rest is absolute shit. It's (laughs) dreadful. I was was seriously let down, let down by, by the first album I ever bought. It was horrible. That's really funny. That's like when um, my friend Peter Shepard um, bought um, Extremes album because remember they had that ballad more than words. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. But the rest of their stuff was not like that. No, the rest of their stuff was like really heavy, sort of like metal. It was yeah. not his to his toes. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> you know it, it, it's like buying the album by the neck. <laughs> Um, all right, uh, uh, that microphone is escaping yeah. again. Can you just straighten it a bit? Got it. Uh, so. Um, uh, we need to start to finish up. Good. But, um, I'm not I, good. I love well, you saying it, but yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> no. Um, I, I said it a bit too quickly, out, didn't I? come out a little quickly. Good. Yeah, yeah. good. All right. Okay. Well, it turns out we do. I was really just being polite and was going to bang on for a bit longer. Ah. But, um, no, I, I want to ask, uh, there's a couple of key things that I always get to here, which is we've touched on one a little bit oh. already, which is religion. But do you have any... So. If you kind of have walked away from, you know, your Catholic beliefs, yeah. have you replaced those beliefs by any sort of uh, thoughts about what you believe life, you know, is about? Do you have a set of beliefs by which you sort of guide your life? Um, what do you understand the nature of our, you know, existence to be? It's, I know, it's a, just if you could just summarise that in about 15 seconds. That'd uh, be. Um, I have no idea. Do you think about it? No. Do you think about I, why, I, I, why I, you're I, here? I honestly don't. I Never. I, Oh yeah, I, it, it's crossed my mind. But, but you don't sit around every no, day and go, "What is the purpose of my absolutely, existence?" Absolutely not. I, Why are we human beings? This accident in the corner of the universe. Why do we exist? What am I doing? Um, be- that doesn't cross your mind. No, no. Oh, I'm sorry, mate. What a lovely life you live. I know, I know, I know. I mean, you know, I, I. Maybe no, I, that's a perfectly legitimate answer, and I think it's probably. I don't the, think about it. It's probably the most sensible answer because none of us can actually. Like yeah. understand the nature of our existence. See, so, see I, I have this, I have this, this, this thing that if I start asking questions, I like to have an answer at right. some stage. Yeah, and for that, I, I, I know there's no answer, so I'll just, just keep going. Okay, so what then? And that leads mm. us to the next bit. Do you think about death? Like, yeah. you know, do you think about what happens when you die? Is death something that is present in your mind? Oh, constantly. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah okay. no, I, I, well, one out of two. That's fine. Yeah. And I, 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 I morbidly obsess about death. I, I think, um, look, I've seen, I've seen someone die. Um, oh. I, I, I saw my father-in-law pass away oh. in hospital and there is, we die. Mm. I mean, we, I, I think I'll be fine because once it's happening, they'll reach a point where I won't exist anymore and I won't know it, it's happened. I don't believe in an afterlife because... Oh, I'm fucking sick of this one. I'm not. No, no, I'm not sick of this one. That sounds too depressive. But you know, once around's enough. Yeah, once around's enough. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I think that's actually. Uh, do you think about what uh, you would like to? Um, so I, I, I don't. I have. I'm not one of those people at all who cares about like literally once I'm dead. Mm. If you just want to toss me off the side of a boat or something, oh, yeah. like I don't, I don't care. Whatever, whatever, whatever is best. Burn me in the backyard or whatever's environmentally friendly. Recycle me or feed me to homeless people or whatever you need. Take some bones, take some organs. None of them will be much good, but like you know, whatever you want. Like I'm dead now. But some people think a lot about like, oh no, I'd like it to be a big party, or I'd like to sort of like you know, uh, you, have you thought about that? Do you want to be buried, cremated? Like, do you ever think about any of those things? Dump from a moving car. I oh, mean, that'd be fun. That'd it? be cool. Just wouldn't? for fun. Just just to freak people out. Just, yeah, exactly. Just, just, it's his last wish, guys. <laughs> Come on. Wish. We're going to wrap him in a blanket from and the back of a ba- black thunder. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get Triple M to bring the car, and we're just going to roll him out of a moving car. Either that or a full Viking funeral. I'm I'm easy yeah, either way. I mean, that'd be great. That'd be cool, but with a Viking feast. Oh yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm with you. Something, something environmentally responsible. Um, uh, one thing I have learnt from as you get older, you attend more funerals, and I've been Paul Bearer. Coffins are fucking heavy. Yeah, and um, don't put your friends through that. They're already having a bad day. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and and the worst, the worst one was actually at my father-in-law's funeral. Um, I was on the right-hand side of the coffin, and uh, so I had it in my left hand, and I was wearing my wedding ring. And here's a little hint. If you're planning a funeral, mm. don't get hexagonal grips on the coffins because it caught under my wedding ring and almost broke my finger. At one point, I thought I was actually going to have to swap hands and go down backwards, which not, would not be a fitting memorial. I mean, well, at least I guess <coughs> someone in the room would be having a worse day. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There is that. There is that. I, I, you know, I... Well, quite frankly, there'll be no one around for my funeral because I, I intend to bury you all. Okay, I, I hope that's the case too. I, I intend to die young. Um, so, uh, and I did. Oh, well, as Paul McDermott would say, die young but not leave a classically handsome corpse. Yes. <laughs> so, Mikey, uh, at the moment, the book, also, what else? Tell me what else is going on in your world. Um, I'm promoting the book. Um, bizarrely enough, for, for me, I enjoyed the process so much of writing and it seems to be being well-received enough that I'm... Um, Going to do another one? I'm about 20,000 words in. Okay, and, right. And uh, I've got a bit, bit, more, bit more research to do and I've promised myself that I will actually... Sp- uh, we talked about this before. I, I, I look at this as, as a job. Um, I'm going to keep working up until I can take some time off from it in January. Uh, tell me this, uh, is there anything that you haven't done? Cause I look at your life and I think, you know, you've, 
you've written and you've improvised and you've done stand-up and you've, uh, you know, uh, been involved in successful TV shows and radio shows and worked with, you know, everybody there is to work with in the industry at, at some stage or time. Is there something still left? Un- is yeah. there an itch left unscratched? Yeah. Um, I, I did drama at uni and I, I, I did some plays and I wasn't bad. I wouldn't mind doing a straight acting role. I wouldn't mind having a crack at that. I mean, people I know. have been accusing you of being straight acting for many years. Yes, so oh, I see. I yes. feel like yes. Yes. <laughs> that no. was for the yeah. non-classically handsome. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind having a crack at acting. I oh, see. I could definitely see that. See, mm. that's a good. That's a good next. Yeah, write books and then just do like get some like, uh, you know, surely on the reboot of Sea Change they could have a. Gnarled, gnarled old shipping captain or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah, or, or a, a drunk, like a cranky old drunk. Yes, there's got to be a role for that. Yeah. You know? If anyone out there is listening, you need a cranky old drunk, I'm just, just pop into the Lord Dudley. I'm there most days. Do you know what? Uh, like there are, I think Australia's crying out for a new Bill Hunter. And, <laughs> you know, yep. it's been a respectful amount of time, I, I you know, for Bill's legacy. But what we really are missing now is a guy who takes all these phone calls from the pub yep. and uh, wanders onto set, uh, possibly drunk uh, at the time, and gives the best performance in the entire thing. I would love to do that. Well, it's uh, been good to... Uh, when you are the next Bill Hunter, please mm. come back and talk to us again. But in the meantime, buy uh, Mikey's book. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. I'm not back full-time at the moment, as you know. There's a couple of episodes that have come through. Um, I will say this. There's been a bunch of blokes in a row, you know, that uh, I normally try to kind of mix it up. Um, it's just been a coincidence because I haven't been doing it full-time. But, um, you know, we'll, uh, there's, I've got heaps of amazing... Uh, all sorts of uh, amazing guests coming up. So um, when we get back into it more regularly, you know, we'll address that and get back on track. Um, thank you very much for listening. You can contribute to the Patreon at tofop.com um, if you would like. And currently um, I have some shows on sale. So I think that I am on sale in, uh, well, definitely Melbourne News National Comedy Festival for my new show, Well Informed, um, and uh, Hobart at the Spiegel Tent. That one's nearly sold out, I think. Um, I think there's Newcastle and Darwin are coming and look heaps of other places too. I've got a slightly used mountain bike for sale as well, so just contact right. with So me. if you need a slightly used mountain bike, that is also available. <laughs> the end. Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs>